This is Fine, Episode 1.2, Argumentum Ad Populum. Hi, this is Jeremy Ruff. And this is Jerry Vinokurov. Uh, and before we go into the second episode of the podcast, we thought we'd tell uh, you a little bit about ourselves. So we actually both grew up in San Diego and went to the same high school. And we were not just in the same high school, but in the same nerd program. That's right, where we basically, uh, it was sort of like reading the uh, great books or uh, classics of Western Civ, um, along with 18 other angry nerds. Yeah, it was a real delight. This episode, the title is dedicated to uh, the Latin program at our high school. So, yeah, Magister uh, Stanzel, this one's for you. That's right. But, I, you know, I think that what's interesting is that our political commitments um, have not actually changed substantially, although I'll say if this were a long-running uh, chess match or something, Jerry would be winning by far, because my political commitments, I think, have read, led me to a few more wrong errors. I'm not actually convinced that that's true. Um, I supported the Iraq War. Oops. Yeah, I, sure. But um, I definitely had a Randian period at age 16. Uh, lasted about a month. But, you know, it's not something I'm proud of, but I will admit it publicly. So I, I think it's fair to say that um, I would self-describe myself as a neoliberal. And I would identify that commitment as arising not out of a belief in liberalism and rights or some inalienable rights granted by a divine creator, but a liberalism of fear um, associated with the late political scientist and theorist Judith Schor. That is that basically uh, I don't want to be killed. And I think that the basic uh, notion of liberalism arises from the freedom from cruelty and coercion. And that's why I have a commitment to political liberalism. So my political commitments, I would say that I am somewhere... I occupy some space on the left, I guess, of what one would call liberalism. I, I would probably be closest to what people tend to call democratic socialist. Uh, I would not describe myself as a Marxist, but the biggest influence on my thought has been Richard Rorty, who obviously sort of is uh, in, in some ways an inheritor of Judith Schlar. And in particular, the one sort of thing that has always stayed with me since I've read it is his an adaptation from Schlar in Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, where he says that liberals are people who think that cruelty is the worst thing that you can do. I don't know that that's enough to you know build a political program around, but that's a core commitment that sort of informs the more specific things that I find myself committed to. And I imagine the areas that we'll fight as we've fought for the last 20 years and may, may do so forward <laughs> on the podcast um, aren't going to be revolving around things like, should we avoid cruelty, which I think we agree on, but probably over more ends. And I would say also equality as a norm, something I'm not sure I'm committed to, and I, which I think Jerry has a, a sort of deeper political commitment to. I think that's pretty accurate. So with that as the sort of who we are, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about two different articles. Um, first, we're going to be talking about Jedediah Purdy's Populism's Two Paths. And this is an article that talks about left and right populism. And I think we're going to particularly focus on left populism um, and what that might mean in an American context. And that's that was published in The Nation. And then we're going to talk about an article that was published in a magazine called The Point Mag uh, by Malloy Owen, which is called Don't Mourn, Repoliticize. And this article is effectively about the limits of contemporary liberalism, or what Owen asserts are the limits of contemporary liberalism. Um, so with that, oh, and then we'll take a reader question. So with that, Jerry, uh, the Purdy, what, you know, what did you think of this? 
So the pretty article is structured as a review of uh, two different books, uh, followed by sort of his own conclusions. Uh, the two books are The Populist Explosion by John Judas, whom you may remember from such acclaimed works as The Rising Democratic Majority or something like that. I believe its subtitle the, is How We Will Always Win Elections Forever Without Trying. I'm sorry, The Emerging Democratic Majority. That was uh, his book with Roy Teixeira, is that right? That's that right, Roy Teixeira. And it's effectively about how a demographic changes uh, which obviously have happened to some extent, are going to create a broad base for a new democratic coalition that will win all elections in the future. And it's it's a thesis which Judas himself has actually uh, repudiated. Oh, I did not know that. But the second book is a book called What is Populism? It's by uh, Jan Werner Mueller, who is a political scientist at Princeton. And it's more focused on the various populist movements that are occurring in Europe. So the basic idea of uh, the populist explosion is to try and kind of suss out the history of these various populist movements, not just in Europe, but in the United States, and try to find kind of a common origin for them, I guess you could say. And the genealogy that he traces, uh, or rather that Purdy has him tracing, is back into the financial crisis, but even before that, into kind of this state that held during the 90s, for example, where there was this notion that a managerial liberalism that was focused on sort of, on the one hand, kind of managing the worst excesses of capitalism, but on the other, and on the other hand, deregulating certain aspects of it was going to produce, you know, shared prosperity. And um, we were going to just sort of like status quo our way into a glorious future. And Judas is, I think, far more sympathetic to populism generally, actually, because of this narrative than, for example, Mueller or, or Purdy. Right. And I, I think this is a very common analysis in this story that a lot of people have been trying to write, where the financial crisis of 2008 really brought into sharp relief the limits of this approach, where we had like the Clintonian 90s, which were pretty good. And then there was like this mild dip at the in the first years of the, of the Bush years. And then things seemed to be going pretty well. They weren't great, but they were acceptable. And then all of a sudden, just we fell off a cliff. Right. Right. And I think this narrative relies a lot on things like tying to Glass-Steagall, for example. Glass-Steagall originally prevented commercial and investment banks from being together. It was repealed during that, that Clinton era. Clinton's deregulation of financial derivatives and of some of the contracts underlying uh, varieties of, of, for example, credit derivatives happened in the late 90s. And this sort of populist theme, I think, reaches back and says, oh, this is of a piece. It's not just that the financial crisis was caused by the Greenspan put and artificially low interest rates that caused a housing bubble. No, it was a part of this whole milieu that had come out of managerial liberalism in the 90s. Right. And so for Judas, and I think in part for Mueller as well, although um, we'll talk about him separately, part of what unifies these populist movements, both in Europe and in the United States, is, the, is their skepticism, not just about neoliberalism kind of as a whole, but specifically about its global implications. So the, the whole idea of a global market where, you know, capital is free to move, you know, wherever it wants without kind of regard for national boundaries is now an idea that is very strongly under skepticism by pretty much everybody who is kind of living through this through this process. Right. I mean, I think one of the the reasons though this is different from the Mueller argument and I think importantly is Judas um, makes a number of commitments attached to populism which are already present in 
uh, Europe. And so I think that Mueller has a more negative view on populism and also doesn't locate as much, I would say, righteous indignation because of the fact that in Europe you do have uh, increased unionization or or relative to uh, America, obviously, you have a social welfare state, you have a lot of provision of various types of forms of care for workers. Um, and so I think it's harder to make this sort of populist argument, although if you were coming from the left in Europe, you would still talk about the EU and sadomonetarism and the various fallout of the financial crisis on the working class in Europe. Right. And I think it's important to remember that despite the fact that sort of, you know, we seem to be living in this world that's being carried along by waves of populism. And I guess there's an open question here is like, what really counts as populism? And that's more suited to the Mueller part of this article. The nature of it, you know, might be kind of broadly thought to be similar, both in Europe and the United States. But there are really important differences between the way that, for example, the European Union is organized and the way that the United States are organized, right? The United States is a single country with a federal structure. And there are, you know, whatever else you can you want to say about it, the deficiencies of that structure, it also does engage in actually a large amount of redistribution, um, you know, California subsidizing uh, Louisiana, for example, right? That's a real thing that happens. Whereas the structure of the European Union is much more restrictive in many ways in terms of like, you know, fiscal policy, for example. Right? That's right. There's not real fiscal integration in the European Union. And I think that the, ultimately the downfall of the European monetary project is related to that lack of fiscal integration. You can't have a single currency, especially a currency inflation managed for the Germans and not then have transfers to places that are in active recession like much of Southern Europe was. And, you know, that resistance or what some people call sadomonetarism, this monetary policy that ultimately immiserates people, is, I think, if you were to make a case for a similar type of populism of economic ends, the the locus for that in Europe. Although I, I do want to say, uh, putting my neoliberal hat on, that I think one of the weaknesses of Judas's case is the fact that you do have these populist movements that are rising up in places that are traditionally far more homogenous and far more taking care of their of their workers, you know, that, that have much better policies, arguably, for workers or, or non-neoliberal policies that had some degree of deregulation and some degree of managerial neoliberalism, but not nearly as much as there is in a U.S. context. I mean, labor markets throughout Europe are, are look nothing like the free labor market in the U.S. One of the interesting things about this homogeneity issue is that I think for a lot of American observers, when, you, when we look across the Atlantic, we're so used to this idea of seeing kind of like Europeans as like, quote unquote, white people, that sometimes like it's hard to recognize that the Europeans don't see themselves that way at all, right? And that the animosity felt by, you know, British retirees towards Polish plumbers is not very dissimilar to the animosity felt by like a lot of white Americans towards Hispanic immigrants. That's true. Or even more parodically, you know, uh, French-speaking Belgians towards Flemish-speaking Belgians. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a place like Spain, it's interesting to see that, uh, for example, like Podemos is linked, as, as I understand, I'm not an expert on Spanish politics by any means, but as I understand it, like Podemos is very closely linked to the Catalonian independence movement. Like there's a lot of shared sympathy there. I don't know to what extent they the, those are like overlapping Venn diagrams, but it does seem like, you know, the Catalonians probably they view themselves as somewhat Spanish, but a lot of them may not. And uh, there is a lot of internal friction there that isn't recognizable if you're just looking from the outside and you say, oh, well, this is Spain. Spain is homogenous. But I actually think this is one of the other issues with 
both a left populism in Europe and and also this notion of a left populism, which I think is really what I would at least like to use the Purdy article to talk about. Like, can you build a left populism? There's a professor, Ben McKean, who is uh, actually a friend of mine, and, and he wrote on um, this this theorist, Ernesto Laclau, in part because uh, Laclau influenced both the heads of Podemos and Syriza in Greece, Podemos in Spain and Syriza in Greece, these left populist movements. And Laclau says, well, the nice thing about populism is it doesn't have to be based on animus towards immigrants or, or xenophobes. You just need, quote, an empty signifier to locate all of the demands of the people within And what McKean, I think, points out pretty correctly is, you know, this sounds great, but ultimately there are types of identities that pull away from being the people. And actually one of those, for example, is language difference. So you may be politically aligned with the Catalonians in terms of your economic positions, but when it comes down to actual signifiers of difference that pull away, in the U.S. context, it would sort of be obvious that Black Lives Matter comes to mind. You know, if you demand equality from policing and you think, oh, this should be a popular demand and one that could be made as part of a populist demand, a left populism based around, you know, freedom from the state in certain ways. The problem is that if you have very differential treatment towards groups, as obviously African-Americans are treated very differently in the States, this is going to fracture your populist coalition. I'm actually a skeptic of left populism, both especially in the States, but even in, in Europe, because of, of this sort of tension. I'm not sure that you can actually have a left populism when some of the most strident sort of issues that are going to come to the fore, particularly in conflicts against both financial elites and also governmental power, are going to uh, disrupt the notion of a, a people. I have to say that I was I read the McKean article, and I'm a little bit skeptical about the utility. I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I have read LeClau's work. I have not. Neither have I. Filtering it through McKean's paper. I'm very skeptical about the utility of this signifier thing as an explanatory mechanism for why populist movements arise and how they operate. It seems to me that if you kind of just look at the history of it, you don't really see people rallying around just like arbitrary symbols. Like those sim- the, the symbols that people rally around, they make a lot of sense in the local context. They are not some kind of like just, oh, well, this is going to be our rallying flag from now on just because this is what brings people together. It, it seems to me that this puts the causality backwards in terms of like what actually is it that drives people into the streets. It's real like material concerns, well, material, cultural, whatever. But those are like real concerns that people really do feel. They're not just like empty signifiers, whatever that might be. Well, I mean, I guess the question is, though, if you have these real concerns, can they be disrupted? There's been a lot of pitch, obviously, since the election of, oh, we need to get rid of identity politics. And I think you and I both disagree with that move for different reasons. But again, in, in sort of if you were to construct a left populism, and it was one, say, based on really authentic responses to a financial elite, as opposed to, say, a right populism like the Tea Party, which I think was based very much on a variety of things, uh, racial resentment, um, fear about Medicare being taken away, sort of interesting axis of redistribution. But a left populism, I don't know. I, I think it's a very hard left populism that can maintain its coalition without getting disrupted, you know, disrupted in, in certain good ways, but I think that would pull away from a, a being able to have really broad support because of concern for things like racial justice or disproportionate treatment um, towards various minority groups, or for, for example, sexual orientation minority groups, etc. I think there's a real generational gap going on here because from, you know, talking to people of 
that are in our generation and younger and maybe a little bit older, I don't really get the sense that they necessarily, at least the people that I come in contact with, don't necessarily see those as like separate issues, right? I mean, in some ways, this is really what in some academic circles is called intersectionality. But what it, what I think it really comes down to is a question of whether or not you can form shared political commitments with a lot of people. And my sense is that, you know, there's a broad feeling on the left that all of these things are, you know, they really do indicate shared political commitments, like commitments to racial equality, commitments to sexual equality, commitments to just broadly based autonomy and commitments to economic equality, like all of those things, they are not, they're not the same, but they are, but they are representative of a kind of a broader sense of like what it means to have a just society, right? They're not, so, so there's no particular reason that I can see that a commitment to, you know, economic justice has to be somehow different from a commitment to racial justice. Like, well, I, see, I would agree with that. And and I certainly don't think we should abandon, I, I mean, I you know, I, I think a both and politics is important here. And I agree that they may not be in conflict. What I'm arguing is that they may be in conflict in terms of a, a populist movement. I'm not sure that you can have a populism that is a sort of arising from the people and 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 focusing on an enemy, which I think is the nature of populism. Like, so we're going to say populism a lot, but if I had to define populism and abandon either the left or the right signifier and just try and say, what's the commonality, I would say that it groups a group of the people against an other. And in left populism, it tries to channel that typically uh, in an economic direction. And in right populism, I think the other is, is often actually literally an other, like a, you know, a, an immigrant population or um, some sort of, you know, Jews, some, someone who, who is not central to uh, the state or the group of people. But what I, again, I'm, I'm skeptical about is, you know, you can have a broad movement based around economic and racial justice and sexual equality, and, and, and that could be a broad liberal movement. I'm not sure that you can have a, quote, popular movement that focuses on an other that is composed of disparate coalitions like this, even if they're fighting for a, a shared notion of equality. It's interesting to ask, right, what counts as like a populist movement, because, you know, we've had this election and if we're just counting votes, Hillary Clinton won it and won it by a fairly significant margin at this point. I think, you know, just on a national popular vote level. 2.6 million. Right. Is that where we are now? That's where we are now. And and so it's really like, you know, you look at that coalition, you say, okay, well, that coalition failed to deliver particular votes in particular places. And that's part of the problem of the way that our electoral system is structured. But then at the same time, it did have a fair amount of buy-in. You know, some people were voting for Clinton, some people were voting against Trump, whatever you want to call it, right? That coalition, you know, delivered some significant number of votes. And I guess the question for me is, like, why does that not count as a popular coalition. Like, oh, it's a popular coalition, but it's, but it's not, not a populist coalition. coalition. Yeah. So so that's a funny distinction, right? It, it kind of mixes the senses of these two words together in a way that maybe isn't very productive because there's this notion that, okay, populism is like, and this is something that Mueller actually touches on. So maybe it's a, it's a good place to enter into that part of the article. Which is that, you know, as you said, that populism is not just a kind of like a broad-based coalitional movement, but that it is directed against some other uh, that is held to be like the enemy of the people. And for Mueller, the major concern is the question of like, well, who counts as the people? 
And this is the point where I would say that citing citing Rorty um, and his discussions on cruelty in particular, what you know, my general feeling is that what we should be doing is we should be maximally broadening this notion of like who counts as the people. Because if you let yourself be diverted into a situation where the people are only like some nominal sub, like some smaller subset of everybody that you can capture, I, I think you can't end up with it like a broadly based populist movement that's going to be committed to like actual justice. I think the core of this really is that left populism is not necessarily something to be reached after. And I think one of the struggles here when we're trying to define a movement that could contain all of the things we like about contemporary left liberalism and then say, can that be left populism, is that what this gets into is what's the distinction between a popular movement and a populist movement. And I think that the concept is really over pluralism. I I think that, and you were noting this with where Mueller goes and Mueller talks about uh, later in the article, a a degraded democracy, right? That it, it, it treats democracy as a, as a means against another rather than as a means to um, enhance the equality and rights of the people living under it. And populism and popular, I, I think the, the core difference is that a, a populism rejects the notion of pluralism. And, that, and that's why, at least from my end, I don't think there can be a fundamental left populism, because I think that the plural commitments that we would have, and we would have even if we lived in a more homogenous but still, say, Polish-hating uh, European country, uh, you know, I think that it would, it would similarly sort of run into a blockade. Right. So Mueller's major point, I think, uh, is that the problem with populism is that as the differences between what the populace can deliver and what they promised is thrown into sharp relief, the populists end up cannibalizing the democratic institutions that brought them to power. And I think actually that is a very real and important thing to be worried about because there is a possibility, right? Ultimately, these institutions are not set in stone, right? They are only as good as people's commitments to them. So it is, I think, very important to guard against populist movements that can end up compromising those institutions. Uh, The two examples that Mueller gives are uh, Chavez in Venezuela and Fidesz in Hungary, which I think is quite valid. I guess what I would say is that, you know, we're right now we are looking at populism as uh, drawing this distinction between like what counts as the people and what counts as the other. And I would like to see a populism that isn't so focused on it. I don't know if that would be populism according to the definitions that uh, Judas and Mueller are working with, but I would like to see a populism that's sort of genuinely concerned about, you know, bringing shared prosperity, reaching shared goals. A populism that says that we can expand, you know, our concept of justice to include, again, racial justice, econ- economic justice, uh, justice for sexual minorities, whatever you want, but that is also cognizant of the institutions that make the, that justice possible. And there's a good uh, there was a good interview that I'll just quickly cite here with a, a guy named Sabil Rahman who wrote a book called Democracy Against Domination, which is very much in this sort of Deweyan slash Rortian theme. So my sympathies are with a populist movement that doesn't say like we are the people and you are the other, but a movement that says we are all the people and we should be trying to accomplish kind of broadly shared uh, social goals. And of course. You know, to some extent, there are going to be people who are not going to accept that. Those are real and legitimate conflicts, and we're actually going to talk about that in the uh, when we address the next article. 
But that is where I would like to see kind of populist movements go. I mean, I'm fine with that vision, but I guess I'd like to read that out of populism in a funny way. Okay. I mean, to me, what we're talking about, both in that interview, which, you know, you had, you had sent me and I, I appreciated, and in rethinking where a democratic left goes, it's about the parts of social democracy that are necessary for each individual in our society to achieve their capabilities and to have real freedom of the choices that they would like to make as actualized agents. And I think that that's a beautiful goal and it, and it has a lot of positive values associated with it. And it's one that we should fight for and create institutions to fight for. But to me, it is precisely the sort of value of it is it can incorporate new versions of who the people are. It is not in fact tied to any people. It's an exportable philosophy that I think is transnational, and it also can include new new immigrant groups to it uh, and refresh itself. Um, and I think that, in fact, rather than even trying to semantically hold it within that content of populism, I would love to just put that out there as sort of, well, this is liberalism's new answer to authoritarianism, much as sort of the ultimately managerial liberalism came out of the New Deal. Um, th this may be sort of our second shot at it, a, a slightly more social democratic version of it. But I think you're right. I think it's a very good segue to, to our next article, uh, which I think the subtext of which is that um, liberals are, are losing and are terrible at everything. I don't know if I would necessarily say that that is the subtext. That might actually be the just the straight up text. <laughs> Maybe it's the text, uh, yeah. But uh, the article that we're talking about here is um, an article titled Don't Mourn, Repoliticize. It is by Malloy Owen. It is at, at The Point Mag. And the basic thesis, I think, of this article is not so much that, you know, liberalism is terrible, although maybe Owen would assent to that proposition, but it's that this this managerial approach that has dominated liberal politics for the last 30 or 40 years has this deficiency that it obscures real fundamental value conflicts. And uh, in particular, in his article, Owen draws on Carl Schmidt, whom uh, you may know from- A Nazi. So yeah, I was going to say whom you may remember from such classics as the Holocaust. Yeah, so he draws on Schmidt, and Schmidt's basic uh, idea was that, you know, what politics is really about, it's about the division between the friend and the enemy. And you help the friend and you crush the enemy. So that is that is the basis of politics in uh, the Schmidian universe. And in case you think Jerry is missummarizing it, I, I once talked to a friend of mine who, uh, you know, got a philosophy PhD, and he compared Schmidt to the heel in wrestling. You know, some someone who almost seemed actively to be uh, trying to to provoke. Um, also worth noting that uh, Schmidt continued to work. He died only in 1985. If you were a philosopher for a totalitarian system that murders millions of people, you continue to be a professor. It's one of these amazing features of, uh, you know, no Nuremberg for the philosophers. That's right. Tenure keeps you from being put on trial for war crimes. But the core of this uh, Schmidian idea is actually very interesting because, just you know, despite the fact that it was put to kind of pretty horrific uses uh, by Nazi Germany... The philosophical core of the idea, I think, is very interesting, and in, because what it is, what it really is about, it's about making conflicts, especially value conflicts, explicit. And part of the thing that what's bubbling up right now in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump is that a lot of things, like people will say, oh, Trump is saying the things that we wanted to say, but weren't allowed to say, even though there are no laws prohibiting you from saying any of those things. 
But the permission to make those conflicts really explicit was sort of, I don't want to say suppressed, but it was sort of written out of the political discourse. You didn't go on CNN and say, the Mexicans are raping our women, right? Like that was just not part of what counted as acceptable discourse. And even though that, that um, I mean, that statement itself is really just a proxy for like not actual things that are happening, but they're proxy for a cultural conflict. I, I think that's absolutely right. And to, on that point, you know, you have a lot of people who felt that their cultural values had suddenly been assumed away as opposed to being argued against. And actually, you know, to be fair, I think this is the point where where I think the argument has the most legitimacy. When um, gay marriage became the law of the land and you had some people who objected to that, um, this was immediately turned into, rather than an argument about values and humanity and equality, sort of, well, this is settled. And I think that is a very sort of strange discourse, um, not because we were in the wrong as, as liberals. I think we were deeply in the right about human equality. But I think because there were a lot of people who felt like um, the opportunity to even have a conversation or the language to have a conversation, they didn't have the rhetoric to deploy. And they felt like all of a sudden the cultural norms had been flipped without any conversation about it. It's the ground shifting around you and you don't know what just happened. The particular example that Owen gives in his article is the example of bigotry being bad for business, right? He says, it doesn't, uh, the, this argument says, it doesn't matter whether or not you're racist, it says, because as long as you care about making money, you won't act like one. Well, this sounds like a very weird argument to make if what you're really concerned about is the fundamental justice of racial discrimination or anti-discrimination, as it were, because you're really kind of dodging around it. You're, right, you're, and, it, and it begs this terrible question. So if racism was good for business, it's right. okay. Would you do it? Like, right. the, oh, that, yeah. And this is actually interesting. I mean, it's like, it's almost like um, this has a certain antecedents in like, I think Gary Becker's model of discrimination where he was just like, well, people who discriminate really are willing to pay like X dollars to, you know, discriminate against black people. Like, okay, I mean, maybe that's true. And maybe if you made the fine for discrimination X plus one dollars, they wouldn't do it. But it also is kind of like extremely arid. It's it's, it's really an uninteresting question when we're debating what counts as like public morality. Right. And I think there's the other weird thing about this. So you have a situation where people say, look, the rules have changed. Discrimination is now bad for business. And there's some sort of cultural hegemony present, which I think obscures a very real conflict. But the other thing that's bizarre is this insistent denial that anyone disagrees. So there are no racists who supported Trump, despite Trump obviously activating a lot of permission structure for racists. And I think this is actually a very important part of the ways that the value conflict gets submerged. It's sort of not, what was Hillary Clinton's biggest mistake? It was actually, I mean, and this is where I disagree with Owen, because in the article, he talks about the deplorables comment. But I think the deplorables comment is where she is talking about the value conflict. She's saying there are people who have different values. She was excoriated in the media. The media likes to pretend that no one has any different values, right? There are no racists. There are no sexists. Right. And yeah, that's what I, I mean. I think it's really interesting because even when Clinton is saying those things, she's explicitly dividing people along this like this line where on the one hand, there are these people who are animated like solely by racial animus. And on the other hand, there are these people who are animated like solely by whatever economic concerns or what have you. And there's just like, no, there's no Venn diagram overlap between these two groups, which is like, I mean, whatever, whatever you think of the structure of, you know, the media and Trump voter is like, I think it's clearly untrue. 
uh, I, I'm unclear as to like how Owen Owen uses this phrase that he calls, uh, or not phrase, but rather this term that he calls hyperpoliticization, and it's unclear to me what exactly that means. But it is an interesting rhetorical maneuver where you're kind of just like you take this one group and you pretend that they exist and you section them off into this corner where they're like just isolated and you don't need to talk about them because they aren't really like part of your political conversation even they're just this weird right you draw a cordon sanitaire around the deplorables and then you can actually have a conversation around the rest and right there's a there's a very there's a very strange weirdness to that and i agree that that the article although i disagree with the article's framing of this hyper politicization but I, i i do agree with the point that you can't cordon off a section of people and not engage with their arguments because as you note, there's just a more, much more fluid degree to which those arguments are salient with people. And also, even if there weren't, even if actually in your two Venn diagram examples, there was some sort of circle of the populace, you might strategically choose not to try and win their votes because you might think it was very difficult, but it would also be weird not to bother arguing that the values that they espouse are wrong. So there's an interesting point that Owen makes in here about uh, this is really Owen Chandling Schmidt, which is that one of the consequences of a depoliticized politics, you know, contradictory as that may seem, is uh, that you lose the ability to uh, do rhetoric. You lose the ability to persuade people to reexamine fundamental assumptions about the good, as Owen says. I, I think there's some truth to that. And I think that Part of the problem that liberals in general have been having with a lot of these fundamental conflicts issues have been that they have tended to frame it as we don't make distinctions between, you know, different visions of the good life. We are going to set up a system where everybody can kind of follow their notion of what the good life entails. And that's really great as long as you have basic meta agreements about that system. But that system itself is an encoding of particular values. If my vision of the good life entails, you know, not having to suffer violence because of the color of my skin and somebody else's vision of the good life entails, you know, owning human beings because they are black, those are incompatible versions, right? And so the problem is that when those conflicts clash, a lot of time what happens is that the way that liberal politics tends to try and resolve them is through procedural norms. It tries to get around the value conflict because it doesn't really have a, or it doesn't want to make explicit a specific commitment to like actual specific like human norms. And I think that you see this, for example, it's really marked in discussions about abortion. Uh, You see a lot of times people will have stickers that say, if you don't like abortions, don't have one okay, that's great, but that's not really the problem that's at stake, right? The problem that is really at stake is questions of human autonomy, right? And whether, you know, this globule of cells has the same moral value as a fully grown human being. Uh, Can I I articulate something important here? mm -hmm. Because I think one of the frustrating things about this article for me is that if you look at, for example, Obama versus Clinton, Clinton much more firmly actually did articulate for these values. Obama says, I'm an outsider, I bring change. Uh, he attempts to actually deracialize a lot of context. That, that, that's clearly not his fault. I think that was the only political available path for him in, in a country as, as racist as ours. 
you know, it's Hillary Clinton who talks about implicit bias. It's Hillary Clinton who defends abortion, who abandons the safe, legal, and rare framework. And I, I think I think there's a tension in the Owen article about this, because I, I think actually in many of the ways, what's what's odd is that Hillary Clinton may have lost because she did make the values conflict much more pronounced and open than previous sort of neoliberal adherents of the sort of pluralist uh, procedural argument. I think that's entirely possible, right? I mean, there's no guarantee that when you enter the arena in this way that your arguments will win or will prevail. I mean, again, as we have said before, the majority of people who voted did vote for Hillary Clinton. So it's not like this is an unpopular position to take. Um, But yeah, it's true. I mean, you can make those arguments and you can end up losing. Uh, But I think that the benefit of doing so, whatever, whatever the outcome, politically speaking, is... The benefit of doing so is that you are you're you're not pretending to manage around it, right? It's because the problem is that when you when you work or when you work around it and you don't make those conflicts explicit, what ends up happening is that people sort of forget that they exist and then all of a sudden they explode into view. And when that explosion happens, I mean it's sort of, you know, to to use the explosion metaphor, right? It's rather than releasing steam occasionally, uh, that explosion happens like all at once, and it can lead to you know incredibly disastrous situations, as it has you know in the election of Trump. And 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 I do think that to a large extent, Clinton did make some of those conflicts uh, explicit. I think that I, I I don't want to talk too much about her campaign strategy because I don't think that yeah we did that episode yeah we did that episode, and I don't think that it's super um, I don't think it's super instructive for how we should think about things going forward. Because when you're on a campaign, you are one candidate saying, you know, talking at one specific time to like a particular group of people. Whereas this is really a conversation about a broad conception of what it means to do politics, right? It's not just Hillary Clinton I, on the campaign. I agree. Trail. I agree. But I think Owen is is launching a broadside, a Schmidt-assisted broadside against liberalism, you know, saying that basically citing Schmidt, liberalism's denial of the conflict of values that makes pluralism impossible. But, you know, I think liberalism at its best is Lincoln, yes, fighting the Civil War, you know, sure, but also committing very strongly to values that, in fact, were, were not as maybe strongly committed at the start of the Civil War when it was more of a procedural outcome, right? Like, you have the the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are, in many ways, the strongest liberal parts of the Constitution, you know, equal protection, uh, abandoning slavery, like these are literally uh, declarations of liberal values. And it's true that they come out of conflict. Um, They were intended to guide forward and guide forward reconstruction. I, I, I tend to think that when liberalism is on its best foot, it may not always win, but it is, in fact, articulating these values that, that we're not in some Schmidtian hellscape where, you know, liberalism is just about maximizing uh, economic freedom for for people. So I think it would be instructive to look at, again, a specific example. So I've already, uh, and and we've talked about, for example, abortion rights here. So so that, that has been a really positive, actually, improvement in the way that we've talked about, um, that we've talked about reproductive rights in this country. It used to be the case that we had this safe, legal, and rare framework, and everybody was very, like, squishy about it, and nobody really wanted to commit to anything. And then, uh, you know, a whole bunch of feminists, uh, I I think this is roughly contemporaneous with uh, the election of Barack Obama, but 
basically a bunch of feminists, both on the internet and not on the internet, said, um, hey, this is bullshit. We should actually just make a positive case for bodily autonomy. And they did that. And that actually ended up being extremely persuasive to a lot of the same people from who, sh- you know, who shared uh, those views and who were, you know, maybe not as stridently pro-choice as um, as the original core, but for whom that really resonated, right? So I think that's actually a very good example of how that political maneuver can pay off, right? You really get, like, when you appeal to that to that kind of value, you can really get people behind it. And But of course, of course, the flip side of that is that you are going to get people who are very much opposed to it. And for me, I think what's very important is to acknowledge that that opposition is not some fake, it's not fake and it's not driven by necessarily even ignorance. It's just like, it's like a real legitimate value conflict. And so the solution to that is not to get up there and say, well, uh, you know, you're just like misinformed or something like that, or you just don't really get like what it means, you know, what implantation of the zygote entails. Right, and this is actually like, the horrors of Nobody Vox. cares about that. Right, you can't explain away political opposition. And and I respect the people at Vox a lot, and, you know, you and I both read Vox to get educated, but ultimately Vox's political journalism is insane because it does presume roughly that we have access to the facts and that people who have very deep value commitments that are opposed to ours are are merely ignorant, which is both counterproductive uh, and obviously deeply condescending. Yeah, and I also think another really good example of this is um, conversations about religious freedom. So this is a very fraught topic because for a lot of people, you know, when, when they talk about religious freedom, they think that their right to practice, you know, engage in certain practices that are dictated by their religion are at uh, are at risk. And the liberal solution to this problem has been to say, well, okay, we're not going to like really, you know, the public space is kind of open for everybody and we're not going to engage in any endorsements or otherwise assist religion in, in any real way when it comes to the public space, but in the private space, you can do whatever you like. And that sounds great if you accept the kind of a priori, the position that Everybody should have should be able to choose their own religion or no religion at all, and that none of this that this is a purely private matter and has no real political implications. But of course, the people who are engaged in right wing Christian politics do not at all see it that way. One thing that they understand that I think liberals do not is because the culture is tilted against them, and I think it very much is tilted against them. They can see their own end in a way that like I think liberals really don't. And so they know that like well, it's not going to happen today or maybe 10 years from now or 30 years from now, but like you can see the process of like secularization just eating away at their entire way of life and their faith and whatever. And of course they're going to be opposed to that. They they are going to come out in force to fight the the forces that are going to be that are, that are doing away with what they think as like the right thing, and so you can't you can't just like not acknowledge that conflict. That's a real conflict that really exists, and it's a real conflict that I think has to be met head on. Exactly as you note, in part because the people on the other side are incredibly committed to their values and sincerely committed to their values, and the interactions that, you know, even the Obama administration has sort of tried to do with 
oh, well, you know, just get a waiver, et cetera. Um, I, I think, again, it's this sort of administrative state can go around people's uh, moral commitments. And and so if there is to to rehabilitate, maybe not the Schmidtian access, but, but some of the points of the ways that our current um, liberalism or democratic moment likes to, as you noted, procedurally evade these arguments. I think we do have to meet them head on. And I think meeting them head on is more respectful because ultimately, and it may mean actually that we change certain definitions of what public space are, um, or we we operate in slightly different ways. But but I think that the the, the situation that we have currently, which is where we assume that we're right and that um, everyone who disagrees with on a, a value c- conflict is, is just merely ignorant. You know, if they were just to meet gay people, they would they would understand that they should bake wedding cakes for them. And I think that's so insane because some of these people have children who are gay and have just fundamental religious conflicts. And the question is not, well, we should not let them bake religious cakes any more than we would let a bar owner not let an African-American into his establishment. No, that's clearly morally wrong. But the question is, how do we develop a language and a rhetoric to talk to people that doesn't assume that they're just from outer space, but that they really are humans, they really have different value commitments, and they really, they're, the private sphere and public sphere are intersecting in a way that is not just cleanly disintermediatable by the administrative state. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So, Jerry, I don't know if that has a good segue to our reader question. Uh, it's as good a segue as any. I think it. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about um, a lot about sort of broad-based uh, populism and whether that's po- like a liberal populism is possible. And we've also talked about the explicit articulation of political conflicts of value. And uh, I think this question connects to both of those issues. Uh, This question comes to us from Thomas, and it goes like this. Thomas says, can opposition to the Trump administration be any more successful than was opposition to the Bush administration? If so, how? My impression is that during his first term, George W. Bush got his way in pretty much everything and that he only slightly slowed down in his second term. Uh, Will the unusual shock and outrage against Trump be enough to motivate a more successful opposition or something more required? Want to take a stab at that? Sure. Um, First of all, thanks, Tom. Uh, Second, I think this is tough because I think that there are two types of opposition, and one of them is purely in Congress. And I feel like with the exception of entitlement reform, um, like I would, for example, get bet against Ryan's plan to privatize Medicare because even Republican senators, I think actually almost a dozen Republican senators have already made, mm, I don't know, noises about that. I think that effectively, when you have a minority in the Senate and you don't control the House, it's going to be difficult. But I do think that private protest now comes in a a different and potentially more powerful mode than it did during the Bush administration. During the Bush administration, you had a lot of protest aimed at the Iraq war, um, which was ridiculed in the popular press, which was ridiculed by uh, people like me incorrectly. Sorry about that. And was, I think, very much on the fringes of popular discourse. I think that because of the way that an active minority of people continues to want to not normalize Trump and also some of the actions Trump has already made before he's even been inaugurated um, in terms of the appointments he's made and the some of the foreign policy gestures he's made, I think that there really will be an opportunity to have large-scale civil protest that, that is meaningful and impactful. So I guess that's my sort of bifurcated view of protest in the Trump era. Yeah, I think that uh, it's hard to talk about opposition to Bush, especially during the first Bush administration, without talking about Iraq and 9-11, because those were obviously key moments in uh, in the first Bush administration. 
I mean, Trump is coming in as maybe the singularly most unpopular president ever. Since we've been tracking these sorts of things, I know maybe Buchanan was more unpopular or something, but, you know, in the modern era, certainly he is the most unpopular. And so the opposition, the, the building blocks of the opposition are obviously kind of already arrayed against him in some ways. Now, as Jeremy has said, I think that you obviously you have to win elections, right? You know, that needs to be on the agenda, because if you don't control a branch of Congress, if you don't control the presidency, then, you know, you have nothing. But at the same time, I think that there is there is potential for for opposition, you know, but not just on the private level, but I would also say on the state level. This is something that uh, I talked about on the last podcast. And I think that I'll just mention again, I think this is something that really needs to be on the radar of the Democratic Party just as a whole going forward. And in particular, you know, it's the big states like New York and California um, have a lot of influence that isn't direct, but they can be marshaled in indirect ways. So if, you know, for example, California is modeling like a way that for example, you know, it could use Medicaid effectively or something like that. That's not something that is like a direct jab in the face of the Republicans, but it is something that you could point to and say, hey, this is something that works. Like it's a piece of political rhetoric that you can use as a building block for further opposition. So I think those things are very important. Can it be more effective than opposition to George Bush? I think my hopeful answer is that yes, because of the extreme unpopularity of not just Donald Trump himself, but the Republican Party writ large, right? And and that this is a party that kind of holds power in large part because of the weird geographical distribution of electoral units in this country, not because they have this agenda that's massively popular. And I think um, we can also draw a lesson from a much more successful opposition, which was to President Obama from the Republicans. Um, what did the Tea Party do correctly and what did Republicans do correctly in frustrating parts of the Obama agenda that we can draw lessons from? Well, um, as Jerry just noted, state policy, uh, states attorneys general can file suit uh, against various executive orders um, and challenge various actions of the federal government. Um, the Republicans did this very successfully, in fact, stopping immigration actions and, and grossly delaying uh, implementation of clean power actions. Republicans were very good about primarying squishes. So people who were overly collaborative with the uh, socialist Muslim evil that was Barack uh, Hussein Obama uh, got primaried, um, even to the extent when they were actually bona fide crazies themselves, like Eric Cantor in Virginia. And I think that without going to the same sort of uh, rhetorical craziness, Democrats would be wise to, I think, pose primary challenges to Democrats who are insufficiently aware of the dangers that a Trump administration poses, provided that we come home and vote for the Democrat in the end uh, in, in November, regardless of how the primary outcome goes. So I think those are two ways that I think Republicans were very successful in purchasing the Obama administration that we'd be wise to learn from. Yeah, I want to add one more thing, which is uh, which speaks specifically to the question about shock and outrage. I think shock and outrage can be extremely valuable for some people, but I think they can also be extremely exhausting. Uh, some people have like myself have, you know, can maintain shock and outrage at like at indefinite levels forever. And some people just can't like it gets tiring. So you are so good at being angry. Man. <laughs> it's one of my, one of my uh, superpowers. Shock and outrage can be good motivators, but I don't think they should be the only motivators. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's happening that is just that that will be outrageous. Right. But like, uh, I think it's important for, you know, everybody who wants to be part of the opposition to sort of not 
I mean, you can be outraged, but outrage should not be like the only thing that happens, right? There's going to be a lot of outrageous things and you can't be outraged at all of them because you'll just be paralyzed. So the important thing is to focus on like the, a few things that, you know, that they, where you think you can make a difference and really push hard on, on them just from a strategic point of view, right? Like there's, there's outrage and outrage is kind of like this nebulous thing, but then there's also like, what can we do today? Like what group can we give money to? What campaigns can we, can we help, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like, that's, that's, that's the political version of putting one foot in front of the other day after day. Completely. And, you know, I know dear listeners, you would never do this, but sometimes outrage becomes performative, uh, becomes not just exhausting, but a way actually to to feel good uh, with our friends on social media. And I think to Jerry's point, the more that we can focus on showing up at a congressman's office to yell at them or a congressional office at, uh, hearing that they held in their district, as Republicans did very successfully, yes, some of it was astroturfed, but against Obamacare, um, against the stimulus, you know, the more that... Um, you can just volunteer at the local organization that you think speaks best to your values um, or run for office yourselves. You know, I mean, I think one of the most possibly inspiring things from this devastating loss that I've heard is is many uh, women uh, thinking about uh, running for office themselves. And I, I would extend that. I think if you can, you can think about uh, that possibility and that lies in front of you. Um, you know, we need more people, as Jerry noted uh, in the last episode, to run at every level. There was actually, um, I think there are now two House districts, at least one in Texas, um, that Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote in that were unopposed, where no Democratic candidate won. And, you know, Jerry talked about this last time, and, and that's insane. And so, you know, I mean, I, I really I really do think if you can Think about your own power and think about what you can do. And, and there are a lot of different opportunities. It doesn't have to be, say, be for a house seat. It could be for city councilman. It could be for a uh, you know, state representative. And start small and, and uh, work towards those building blocks. So to tie it back to the content that we've been talking about before we address the reader question, I think it's also important to say that you know, when, as you do these things, if you're involved in uh, these political efforts, don't be afraid to articulate your values, right? Those values are important. And when you speak them, you are giving voice to kind of this shared vision of equality and prosperity. Uh, and I think that can be really convincing, right? If you get out there and and you make that case, make the affirmative case on uh, many levels for, for racial equality, for equality of uh, people of different sexualities, for equality uh, on an economic basis, all of those things are important. It's important for people to hear that. And so it's important for activists and not just activists, but anybody who is act, who is at all like involved in politics to make that positive claim. And I think that that's going to involve situations where, you know, that conflict of values really does become explicit. But I think we need to put those values out there and show what they are and what we stand for. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and thank our talented engineer, Greg Young. Um, and thanks, Jerry. And we will be back in two weeks and with discussion of the news media and particularly the way that the news media shapes conversations around politics, not just the way that the news media covers stories. See you later. See you later.